Welcome to Educational Alpha. I'm Bill Kelly, CEO of Kai Association and your host, bringing you on the ground conversations with business leaders, educators, and industry colleagues from around the globe. Educational Alpha is sponsored by iCapital, the financial technology company with the mission to power the world's alternative investment marketplace. Part innovator, part educator, and part navigator of the alternatives industry, iCapital offers intuitive, scalable digital solutions that have transformed how private market and hedge fund investments are bought and sold. With iCapital, financial advisors, wealth managers, and asset managers around the world now have access to everything they need to deliver the return and diversification potential of alternatives to high net worth investors. To learn more, visit iCapital.com. In this installment, Bill is joined by Ashton McFadden, an expert in the asset management industry. Ashton begins by acknowledging the lack of diversity in the field while discussing the changes that are being made to address this issue. They delve into the different reasons for entering the industry and highlight the necessary skill sets. The conversation takes a closer look at the impact of COVID-19 on the search space and the use of technology, such as LinkedIn, to make talent more accessible. Furthermore, Ashton emphasizes the value of integrating virtual platforms like Zoom into the hiring process, promoting diversity, and providing more career opportunities. Get ready to gain insightful knowledge and actionable advice. Listen in. Ashton Bethadden, welcome to Educational Alpha. Thank you, Bill. Good to be here. Great to be reconnected. I've been a client of yours and a very happy and satisfied one, but that goes back a couple of decades ago. And I think a lot has changed in the industry. I think finding good talent, maybe that value proposition never disappears. And I want to spend the bulk of our time together talking a little bit about the trends and what's changed and what has not changed. But before we get into that, maybe a little bit of your background, because you've had some progressive positions that have naturally led to being a founding partner at James Beck, but hearing a little bit about your background would be a good place to start. After graduating from Cornell, I worked in investment management, really on the private side before moving into sales and trading, and then became very interested in the technology that was changing markets. And ultimately, met a headhunter and his business was exploding, and he asked if I might be interested. And I said, sure. And He focused on asset management. He said, you know something about it. You've taken a couple levels of the CFA. And I began and I started with my partners, our firm, about 21 years ago. We focus exclusively on asset management. We have offices in London, New York, San Francisco, and LA. Remind me again, there's no such thing or person as James Beck, is there? What's the origins of the name? No, we're finding it very difficult to find a name that worked both in the US and in Europe. Every Greek god, every imaginable name you could think of was taken. And one night, a partner had a dream that we should call ourselves James Beck. And that was an amalgamation of the initials of the founding partners. J is Jim, A is Ashton, M, Melissa, C, Carol, K, Kirsty. I'm glad it all worked out in a tangible and pronounceable name. That's a big plus. Talking a little bit about the search space, and I think it's going to be impossible to ignore COVID, but then there's been other tech advances around LinkedIn and other things where maybe access to talent is more attainable by the average person on the street. But just because the iPhone has a camera doesn't mean we're all photographers either. So I think there's maybe some maybe opportunities and some 
maybe things to dismiss there as well. But maybe starting well before pre-COVID, important mentor of mine and a future guest on this platform is Desi Heathwood, somebody you know, and his son, Paul. He had a line that I remember distinctly, which was in the good old days, what defined a good salesperson, it was all white males back then to a very large degree, was an American Express card and a low golf handicap. And off you went. That has not been true for many years. And I don't know, I think when we first met, your search practice had a little bit of a focus on the sales side, but I think it's probably also more broad than that. So maybe talk about the evolution of talent from somebody that was just had the gift of gab to some degree, and then maybe how that's evolved before we even touch upon COVID. To focus on sales, at least to start with, and probably 50% of our business is distribution of one kind or another, and 50% is investment professionals. But with sales, I think it was very relationship-oriented when I got into the business. There was less importance put on technical acumen, and that has changed substantially. Things like the CFA, Kaya have become very important, MBA, depending upon what you're selling, whether it's private equity, private credits, mutual funds, institutional. So you still need to be good at relationships. That hasn't changed, but you really need to be able to bring something to the table. You need to add value. I think potential clients are much less willing to take a call unless they feel like every time they talk to you that you're adding value. And I think that's an important point. And we've seen it from our side too, Ashton, in terms of understanding not only your product, but how it fits into the portfolio on the other side. Because I think it's a very good reminder that let's, for argument's sake, say that asset manager has one single product and you're a master of that product, but you go into a client that has a portfolio of asset allocation in play across everything from traditional to private to infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. And it might not be the right product at the right time, even though it is a very good strategy. So I think it's an important reminder that we have to flip this around and say, what is the client's expectation? And I think the most successful salesperson may be the one that doesn't make the sale on day X, but builds that relationship for another day. I think that's absolutely true. And I think probably a decade ago, at least a decade ago, people started talking much more about solution sales. So it's much less about pushing a specific product and much more, as you mentioned, about understanding a client's portfolio and understanding how you can be helpful to that client. Is it immediate with the products you have? Is it a combination of products that you can put together? Can you even bring in other firms which might help deliver a solution that's effective to a client? And has the talent pool evolved as rapidly as you would like it to see? And maybe to ask in another way that you're asked to do searches all the time, and then that ideal candidate, rare if ever, shows up the very first time you think about reacting to that mandate. And then you've got to go and source candidates. Has that pool of candidates appreciated the need for professionalism and has gotten deep enough or is some of these searches a bit of a challenge because it is hard to find good talent full stop and maybe the evolution of the candidate pool? Yeah. So the candidates, I think professionals have really understood how important it is to be educated, continue to educate themselves, again, to be able to bring value to their clients. I will say I feel like the talent pool was always just a little bit behind. So I think we had talked a little bit about John Gray before we did this. And I think John said, this is the golden age of private credit. In a situation like that, where 
recruiting a lot of private credit professionals. And again, if we talk about the sales side, when we get a mandate from a client, they say, we'd love to have a candidate who's got strong credit experience. There are only so many of those and very few that have done private credit. Then you have to start applying or looking for a skill set that you think can apply and that's relevant, which is why we stay in business. We'll come back to COVID, but you've opened an interesting door around democratization and Blackstone is a perfect example where I think the future of fund X plus one is going to be much more certainly high net worth, probably even mass affluent. And I think they've been very clear as all of these big PE private debt shops have been, which is a very different value proposition because I think all else being equal, if you have a mass affluent as the ultimate owner of that asset versus a sovereign wealth fund, you're talking about two very different levels of sophistication and their expectations around the product itself, the fit in their portfolio, the fit in their asset allocation, two very different things. So as you think about democratization for some of these large firms or even some of the smaller ones, what are the opportunities and some of the challenges around talent there? I think there are tremendous opportunities. A lot of the big platforms, whether it's a Morgan Stanley or a Bank of America or UBS, are looking to increase their clients' allocation to alternatives. One of the big challenges is whether the advisors have kept up in terms of their level of education, understanding of different products, and feel like they can effectively add that to a client's portfolio. So one of the big challenges for a number of salespeople, particularly focusing on the private wealth side of the business, is it's not just a sale to the advisor. You really have to educate them and you have to get them comfortable oftentimes with an asset class with which they know very little. So it's a complicated process. And I think it's probably going well, but maybe a little bit more slowly than people would like. And it's interesting too, as a result of this new and maybe different source of talent and democratization, new verticals have emerged in this industry. And Lawrence Calcano has been a prior guest and iCapital is a sponsor of this podcast platform. And he's been a longtime friend, but it's also not just iCapital, Case and Moonfair. And uh, there's a whole host of these folks as intermediaries. And they are constantly looking for talent and they're just gobbling up headcount. It's really quite remarkable. Do you work with these intermediaries and what are the opportunities and challenges maybe different than what you've seen in a more traditional search space? So we actually have not worked with the intermediaries, but one of the things that our clients have asked us when we are doing people to, say, build out a wealth effort, a private equity wealth effort to the platforms is, are these people familiar with iCapital? Are they familiar with Case? Are there ways to leverage those relationships? So that's become very important. So Ashton, before we leave this disruptor vertical, i.e. iCapital and Case, an interesting point in that the institutional business is very different than trying to access the mass affluent base. And maybe your thoughts on if you were called for a search, and this is an alts manager, but focused on the institutional space, and all of a sudden they decide they want to hire one person to head up distribution. Maybe talk about some of the challenges and maybe some things have to be put in place first. It's not just hiring the silver bullets that's going to get you into this space. So that's a great question. And I think a lot of alts firms that have focused on institutional distribution have really had to learn 
mass affluent distribution. And part of the way they've done that, quite honestly, is to hire us. So they get to talk to a lot of very compelling candidates and try to figure out how they can evolve their business so they're able to target this portion of the market. It's in very high demand right now, as we talked about, in terms of the thought that allocation to alts, particularly from mass affluent investors, is going to increase substantially. And maybe a lot of institutional investors are at or close to max. So it's been a big driver for a lot of alts firms to figure out how to get into this space, how much they invest to get into this space, whether they use somebody to help them with distribution or whether they do it themselves. And then overall, I would suspect then that the trend is going to be maybe more team lift outs or probably M&A, because if there's a hole in your strategic lineup, it's very rare that one body can fill it. That's true. So team lift outs or teams that have worked together before, absolutely. Or you've even seen some firms do acquisitions where they were really trying to get a retail distribution capability or mass affluent distribution capability that they didn't have. And I think with any major trend like democratization, there's going to have to be these interrupters. And I think this model of a wedge between the GP that's used to very large tickets and the wirehouse that is not used to allocating to large tickets, I think there's a very interesting purpose to serve. And I think for somebody that maybe fell asleep and woke up today and is thinking about opportunities, I think as a traditional salesperson at a large asset management firm still exists. But I think that the trend and the pull around and the push around opportunities and career opportunities might be in very different places. And I think this is one area that we've seen explosive growth. And, and while there's a couple of dominant players, we're seeing this model emerge all over the world. So I think it's something that's going to continue to show up not only in your book of business, but certainly what we do around education, transparency, and professionalism. So I think this trend will continue. So Ashton, maybe just going back a moment to COVID, and this has caused a lot of disruption and angst around the world. I'm from New York, and that's where you reside in your New York office. There's been a couple of these very large firms that have been very adamant that if you want to make a New York salary, you're going to be in a New York office five days a week. But it almost feels like the individuals have unionized and individually, but then collectively decided, no, we're going to make the rules of engagement. And it's going to be three days a week. And I do a tremendous amount of travel around the world. In many markets, three seems to be the norm. But I think there are some firms that said three forever. And now it's, you know what, I've got this big expensive office building sitting behind me and you're coming back. Maybe just starting with what this means vis-a-vis search and is that three-day, if you talk to somebody in a very senior position, how important is that to them that they have that maybe quality of life, and not so much just to sit at home, but these commutes can be brutal, especially in the New York City area. For some of the most senior people, it's not that relevant because they are on the road. They may have teams around the world. So they've never really been keeping track of their time or they've never necessarily been in the office three days a week because they're out meeting clients, they're out managing their team, they're doing all sorts of different things. I think it's more of a challenge for like senior to mid-level folks. And some of the recruitment that we have done, I will say that it's much easier to get people engaged in the conversation if you say our client is open to a three-day week schedule. If you say it's five days a week, that just doesn't really fly anymore. So I think even though a lot of firms are talking about the fact, oh, I think I read something recently where one big firm was saying almost all of our employees are in four days a week and some of them are even coming in on Fridays. 
I'm not sure how realistic that is, particularly in the recruitment process, because people do want some flexibility. I think that all makes sense. And then I think other maybe trends and themes that are on the hearts, minds, and souls of, I think, your clients, diversity, equity, and inclusion has obviously been a big topic. And certainly during COVID, vis-a-vis George Floyd, I think this has even raised the bar higher. And I was at some meetings in Dublin just this past week, and the concept of a quota system came up. And I made the observation to the group as a whole, and I think there's a Chatham House rule, but these were my words, so I guess I can attribute it to me, that maybe we have to do that to prime the pump. But I think if we go down that path, I think we're missing the value proposition, which is if you have all folks of the same background and they played rugby at the same school, they belong to the same country club, you could have a concentration of a thought process, a concentration of risks and getting different views by gender, by race, by age, by background. This is all critically important. And maybe you do have to get that started by a quota system. But I think if that's where it ends, I think we've missed the importance of diversification of a thought process. So maybe to formulate that into a question, how many of your mandates, maybe not so much by percentage, but maybe by feel, are really focused on, hey, Ashton, you have to deliver me a diverse candidate pool. And then I want to talk about some of the challenges of you finding such a pool. Yeah, I would say at this point that it's close to 100% of our clients that say they want to see a diverse candidate pool. And we're very comfortable with that because we have a large percentage, actually, of our placements are diverse. But I agree with you. It's important to have a diversity of views because they're a diversity of clients. And you need to be able to appeal to those clients or communicate in those clients in a way that's successful. And we find it even with our clients. Sometimes one client will prefer one of my partners to me or vice versa, and that becomes fairly evident in the course of meetings. And one of the things we think that makes us successful is that we do have diversity. So we can address clients' concerns in a way that they like. So it's important. I think up until, I would say a little bit before COVID, there was more lip service than reality. And then it became very real. And clients that we felt like were giving lip service to it became very serious about it. And that's continued. I think Probably like all things, maybe the pendulum swung a little bit to the extreme. Nobody said anything about quotas necessarily, but there's been probably maybe too much pressure. And now I think it's balancing itself out as things tend to do. And I think putting these two last issues together, I think when you think about maybe one of the few, if any, gifts that COVID gave us, I think this use of Zoom and the flexibility of some of these platforms. And I think what it does is that if I live in a certain zip code and calling Ashton McFadden and James Beck to do a search for me, my immediate thought process is it's got to be somebody that's either willing to relocate or lives near me and they're going to commit to the office five days a week because virtual is not in play at all, which I think if you live in a concentrated area that's largely white, I think that hurts. And also, I think with women who are the primary caregivers for good, better, and different reasons, that's the way it typically has worked out. And it's allowed greater integration of a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different experiences. And I think we should not rinse the value proposition, the importance of that away, because I think it's allowed many folks to have viable career that doesn't necessarily mean five days a week in an office. The technology, as you can probably imagine from a search perspective, has made a huge difference. I would say the good news and the bad news is 
Yes, it makes it easier for remote workers, which is great. For recruiters, we have a lot more people responding to our outreach because it's much easier for them to turn on their screen and do an interview with us. From a recruiter's perspective, though, I would say a lot, not a lot, but certainly there are less serious candidates because it's just so much easier. So in some ways, just the flow of information and opportunities has increased tremendously. But as a client of ours, hirer or a recruiter, we have to look that much more carefully at the candidates, which I think in the end ends up being a good thing as well. Yeah, absolutely agree. But turning the page a little bit, Ashton, and maybe dating myself, when we thought about benchmarking the cost of a candidate, we used a McLagan survey. You can tell me if that still exists or not. But what are the trends? And I assume they're up for talent because it's always in short supply for very good talent. So either an absolute or relative basis, what are the trends of compensation? How do you measure it? Is there a current version of McLagan as an example? And maybe that still exists. So McLagan still exists and it's a useful tool, I think, for our clients. One of the challenges, and they're actually pretty good about this, but one of the challenges is when a market's moving quickly, the data doesn't necessarily tell the story. The market's actually being made day to day, month to month. Comp in general has increased, I would say, across the board, particularly for marketers with relevant experience in alts. As alts firms have moved away from placement agents and third-party marketers, some of the stories have become more difficult to tell. So, for example, if you're an energy private equity firm, whereas you might have had re-ups with a number of endowments, a number of the endowments politically can't do that now. So you need a more sophisticated salesperson able to tell your story, to tell the story of energy, and then to find clients that are willing to make energy, for example, part of their allocation. So those type of candidates who are specialized and sophisticated and can really drive business are difficult to find. And it just drives up the price. In terms of the compensation model, I'm used to this eat what you kill. But I think going back to the early part of our conversation around the importance of skill sets and professionalism, et cetera, that this is just not a new business mercenary in many cases. It's also a person that is going to be in the very best position to service that client as well. So have you seen an evolution of compensation practices going from maybe eat what you kill to maybe some other portion of it that's tied to client retention? So first of all, I would say the eat what you kill, i.e. the commission model, has largely gone away. There are some instances where it still exists or it's part of the comp program, but firms want to have more control and more flexibility, and they want to encourage teams and salespeople to work together as opposed to competitors. So a lot of that has been phased out. There are situations where salespeople are also, I would say, doing a hybrid role, which includes client retention. But then there are some of the larger firms which really bifurcate those two roles. So you just have somebody who's out hunting and then the other person's taking care of the client. That's a bit of a challenge because if you spend a lot of time as a salesperson cultivating a client, you win a piece of business, particularly if you're in a multi-product shop, you should have multi-opportunities to sell to that client again. And you've developed that relationship. So why shouldn't you continue to do that? So firms recognize that too when there's some balance. Some of your competition for this talent, and not by name so much, Ashton, but if you thought about a short list of who your biggest competitors were circa 2015 versus today, 
Is it a very different list? And I suspect it might be, but maybe the reasons why, if it has changed at all. I would say it's very surprisingly similar. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that as the businesses have evolved, all the search firms have evolved. So whereas I would say pre-great financial crisis, quite a bit of our work was in the public markets, quite a bit was long-only equity portfolio managers. That's not really part of our business anymore. We do it occasionally, but there just isn't a demand. And that's been driven by what's happened with the business to shift from active to passive and just a lack of need for that kind of talent. So we've evolved as our clients have evolved into the private markets more and more. So over 50% of our business now is in the private markets. And we're seeing some of the same competitors we saw pre-great financial crisis. Those businesses have evolved as well. And maybe a slightly related question. I'm not sure when this is going to air, but SBF's trial starts today in New York, Sam Bankman-Fried. And I think it does put an underscore on the importance of risk management and operational due diligence. And these are important roles. I'm guessing that's outside of the remit of James Beck. Are you asked to focus on some roles like that too? It's rare for us. Occasionally we'll do it, but that hasn't been really our bailiwick. And I commend you there. Staying in your lane, I think, is important too, because that is a very different set of talent and building that bench out and sourcing that talent for a firm that's pretty focused on certain areas. I think that makes great sense. So I respect that answer. Moving toward chat GPT and generative AI and ML and AI, how big of a premium is it on tech skills as you look to bring talent into an organization? Because a lot of the search inside for clients can be driven by some of these tech-enabled tools. A lot of these trade processes are integrating forms of generative AI. And while it's early, I think it's a little bit of the camel's nose in the tent. And I'm just curious as to how prevalent this is in your practice. So I would say we really rewind. There was a time when you really didn't have to be very tech-savvy. And I think that's changing. And I think Kids are learning at a younger and younger age, programming languages, more and more jobs that we fill require some knowledge of a programming language. I think if you think about chat GPT, for example, everybody's really trying to figure out how to use it. We ourselves are figuring out how to use it. Can it help us in writing evaluations for clients? How good is it? Is it worth the time to train it? It's just going to become more and more prevalent. But I think Firms are trying to understand really how to use it and how to to use it effectively. Tech, maybe five years ago, it wouldn't have been a big part of the discussion in terms of tech-enabled skills, but is that an important box to check? Not so much around chat GPT, but just a tech awareness. And I think it's got to be part of the uniform today, much more so than it was in the past. You have to, because there are all sorts of tools that you have to use. So you have to be willing to use those tools, but you also have to be willing to constantly relearn, right? So just for us as an example, there are all sorts of new databases we have to use when we segue from doing more public markets work to more private markets work. And then within all those things are getting constantly updated. And then there are new things that come out that integrate and that you have to plug in. So yes, it's absolutely the same thing. It's a little bit of tech overload, I would say. In the remaining minutes we have, I want to talk about maybe two cohorts. One is the 50-plus-year-old, and then on the flip side, and we'll come back to this in a second, somebody coming into this industry for the very first time today. So on the 50-plus-year-old, and you probably see as many, if not more, folks than I do, I do have a lot of people coming to me saying, hey, I just got rift, or I left, or my job got eliminated. 
can you help me find something else? And oftentimes the skill set, because they were in the same job for 20 or 30 years, is atrophied. And what is a horrible answer is good luck. You don't have a chance. But then on the flip side, kind of a scary article, the cover story in The Economist this week is living to 120. I don't know if I want that, but the likelihood that you and I can live into our 90s is very much there. And so if you're in your mid-50s, that's a lot of living in front of you. So what advice do you give to somebody that maybe hasn't done enough around upskilling and rather than sit on the beach and fret and try to fit themselves into a position that they have no chance of getting in the first place? Is there something they could do as a way station to get themselves to be more marketable to get back on the grid to some degree? Yeah, I think what I would say to people is, first of all, in your current job, if you've been doing the same thing forever, you need to figure out how to branch out. So you need to constantly be learning. And it's difficult if you've got a full-time busy job and a family and other things to consider, but you need to do it. And I think the easiest thing to do, both for those folks and maybe for folks that are out of a job now and in this situation where they're trying to figure out how to transition, is to find something that you're passionate about. So if you're fascinated with ChatGPT, then you should learn as much about that as you possibly can. You should go to conferences. You should play around with it. If you're fascinated by crypto, you should go to conferences. You should talk to people. You should listen to podcasts. One of the best things about all this technology is all the avenues you have to learn. And then if you're in dialogue with people, people will say, wow, you know a lot about this. Wow, you know a surprising amount about crypto. Wow, you know a surprising amount about ChatGPT. And as I said, not a lot of people necessarily on the cutting edge have the knowledge and skills. So if you come across as somebody who's knowledgeable, you have a lot better chance of finding a place to land. I think that's great advice and embracing, but not fearing the future. But I think also critically important to what you just said is don't wait for that anvil to drop. And if you have been in the same position and you're making a decent living, but I think you got to look around and say, how current am I? Because we all have an expiration date, but the biggest accelerant is lack of knowledge and lack of awareness and looking ahead. And I'm not saying, and I don't think you are either, is to bail out of that job, but figure out how to get yourself up to speed and anticipate that next job as well. So I think excellent advice. The flip side, Ashton, and both you and I have kids of similar age, college and entering the workforce and maybe for both cohorts. It's still remarkable that I think you and I work in a great industry, but it's not a profession. You can't decide to go and major in asset management or major in distribution. You could take courses that might help you, but it's not like an accounting or a law degree. So I think that's always been a bit of an impediment to our industry in that, especially around diversity, we can't graduate big classes of diverse people coming into our industry. But there are a lot of changes taking place. You and I found our way into this industry for very different reasons. But what are the skill sets and what are the advice you would give to somebody, including go someplace else if they're interested in coming into asset management? I think there's many very good entry points, and I would not dissuade anybody from coming. But I think just growing up in this industry and being successful, it could still happen. But I think the skill set, the talents, the awareness, I think back to covid I worry about the interactions, going into an office, understanding how to speak to a client, understand how to dress and behave at a meeting. These are things I learned early in my career, and I learned them by mistake initially. 
So there's a lot there, but maybe your advice to the younger folks that might be listening to this today. So one thing I would say is the interview process is not going away, and I don't think it's going to go away, whether it's via a machine answering questions or talking to another human being. So I think because some of the younger generations have been so focused on technology, they've had less social interaction, so their communication skills aren't as good. And so even for my own kids, we had a person come in and train people in our firm, and he was phenomenal. He did a great job in terms of how to speak, how to present. All of us went through that process. When my son was interviewing for jobs, I hired them to help him. And he said, really, Dad? I said, yeah, really. And you cannot underestimate the importance of being able to communicate the skills that you've developed. The other thing I would say is, of course, you have to be up on technology. That's important. I would also say, again, follow your passion to some degree. A lot of people have been very successful in the investment business because maybe they were passionate about healthcare, but ultimately decided they didn't want to be a doctor or in that business, but decided that they wanted to invest in the healthcare ecosystem. So their passion and knowledge about that industry is very transferable to investing. And I think maybe an important capstone is that it's not just about showing up, it's showing up and being prepared and to expect the unexpected. And I think that's very good advice. Maybe we'll leave it there, Ashton. The lights are back on for us around the world. Our largest chapter is still in New York. We have our live events in Club 101. As I said, I think at the beginning of this podcast, talking about trends in the search space always interests folks. And love to have you maybe come in and talk to some of our folks live if that fits your schedule. I'd be happy to do it. All right, terrific. Thanks for joining me today. And it's great to see you. Thank you. Great to see you too. Thank you for listening to Educational Alpha. I'm your host, Bill Kelly. Learn more about the Kaya Association and subscribe to the show at kaya.org. That's C-A-I-A.org. See you next time.